Love Your Bod Pod. I'm your host. I'm Kara Corinne I'm a certified health coach and I help people heal their relationships with food and their bodies. For those of you that are new to the pod, thank you so much. Welcome. I hope you love today's interview. For those of you that are returning guests, welcome back. Thank you so much for listening and tuning back in week after week. It means so much to me. I do not take for granted that you are listening to this podcast. You can find me at Kara's Kitchen on Instagram. That's Kara with a C, Kitchen with a K, or online at my blog and website, which is karaskitchen.net. On this podcast, Love Your Bod Pod, we talk about a wide variety of topics. We talk about diet culture, anti-diet culture, health at every size, intuitive eating, eating disorders, disordered eating, female empowerment, and so many other things. My whole goal and purpose with all of the work that I do is to help people heal their relationships with food and their bodies and to free up all of the brain space and the mental energy that the obsession with food and their body takes up, clearing it up and out of the way and creating an amazing life that they love instead going after their real passions and dreams and and following the soul pulls to do whatever it is that they really want to do with their time instead of counting calories and macros and all of those things. Today on the podcast, we have an incredible guest. Her name is Dr. Renee Englin. I'm a big fan of hers. I read her book. I loved it. And it was so fun to get to interview her. One of the things I really realized was like, wow, this podcast is such an incredible vehicle to allow me the opportunity to speak to these people who I admire, who I love, respect, that I wouldn't probably otherwise have access to. Like, wow, how cool, how cool. That I really discovered that like wow podcast like gives me a reason to reach out to people I love and be like hey let's hang out for a while that was really cool it really brightened my day and it put such a smile on my face to get to chat with Renee and I'm really excited for you guys to get to hear her message and her wisdom and all of her knowledge and we talk about a wide variety of topics from beauty sickness which is the name of her book beauty sick we talk about how we value youth and what it's like to be a woman who ages and like quote loses value we talk about women's fashions and a a wide variety of other topics we talk about how much money women spend on on beauty related things like hair makeup uh facials nails waxing tanning you know all of these beauty products makeup you know all of these things that we spend a lot of money on you know every month and I think you're gonna get a lot out of it well before we dive in I just want to say that I'm sending you love during this time, during this global pandemic. How Whatever experience you're having, you could be having, I, I know that we're all having such different experiences. A lot of us are feeling chaos and anxiety. We're applying for unemployment. We lost our jobs. We're applying for small business loans. We're trying to just keep our business afloat and open. Some of us are in peace and we're seeing that this is like an awakening, a a global awakening that is happening. Some of us are seeing it as the, the earth just taking a breath, right? Like, you know, the earth needed to clear the atmosphere and clear its lungs. And how funny that there's this virus that creates respiratory issues for us and we've polluted the the air so much for the earth you know I've heard all different types of perspectives and experiences and interpretations of that which we're experiencing right now and I just want to say whatever experience you're having wherever you are it's okay it's valid experience it keep taking care of yourself to the best of your ability and we're all going to get through this 
together. Now, to give you an idea of how awesome Dr. Renee and Glenn is, she is the psychology professor and director of the Body and Media Lab at Northwestern University. She is the author of Beauty Sick, How the Cultural Obsession with Appearance Hurts Girls and Women. Her work has appeared in numerous academic journals, and she is regularly interviewed by media outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Chicago Tribune, and The Huffington Post. Her TEDx talk at the University of Connecticut has garnered over half a million views. And award, as an award-winning professor, she has been voted to the faculty honor roll for eight consecutive years at Northwestern University. So without further ado, let's get into this really awesome interview. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Thank you so much. Like I'm a fangirl for real. Oh, um, that's so nice. And I, I've, I'm just really, I feel so grateful to have a podcast where I can invite my like idols and mentors, my your mentor and you didn't know it on and I can chat with you. This is the coolest thing ever. So thank you. Truly. I'm well, so grateful. That's really nice to hear. Yeah. Your book has made a huge impact on me and I share it with all of my clients. So oh. yeah. I always wonder, it's always such a mystery. You know, you sort of, it's like you birth this thing and then you send it out in the world and you don't really know where it goes. So I'm, I'm always happy to hear when it's found a good home. Yeah. So you are an award-winning professor, renowned writer, you're an author, you focus on body image and media. And I'd just love to know, for those of us who aren't familiar with your work, how did you get here? Where you are, where are you in the world also? And did you struggle with food and body image growing up? And did that have any role in getting to where you are now? All right. That's a lot of questions, but that's a that's a good place to start. Let's see. Um I, I often get asked how I got into this field and did, did I always know I wanted to be a psychologist? Um, and the little bit embarrassing answer is I think so. I think even before I knew what a psychologist was, I did. Um, I used to write surveys and give them to my friends when I was little <laughs> um, and tally up the results and do presentations in a notebook and things like that. So um, I, find, I find people interesting. I like to study people and uh, I think it's, it's an amazing privilege to be able to apply the scientific method to questions that really matter for people and that are really having an impact on people's lives. So um, I've long been interested in, in studying people in general, um, but I don't have a great origin story for how I got into this particular topic. I think a lot of people assume that, um, that I must be an eating disorder survivor or that maybe I you know, have a long history of significant struggles with body image. Um, and that's not really a, a part of my story at all. My story is more about um, me getting really worried about the young women I was teaching in my classes. Um, I've been teaching psychology now since, oh, let's see, 1998 or something like that, a, a very long time. Um, and it was for many years really hard for me to see all these super smart women who could get so distracted and, and so down because they were so worried about how they looked. And so that's how I got into studying this. And when you study something that's interesting to young people, it means that a lot of young people want to work in your lab um, and they bring in all sorts of enthusiasm and energy and ideas. And so it's, it's really been a pleasure to do work in this area. Um, even when our results can be sad, right? We don't always have happy results in our research. Um, I know that a lot of people find them meaningful. And so I feel very lucky to be able to do that kind of work. Um, as far as where, is I am now, where I am now, um, I am in my basement in my 
kind of <laughs> thrown together home office, which is, I know what um, those of us who are lucky enough to be able to work from home, I know a lot of us are, are doing that now as, um, as we deal with this pandemic, which is um, still somewhat new and still something we're figuring out. And so I'm, I'm getting to know Zoom. Um, it feels like this silent coworker I have that, that I don't get along with all that well yet, but um, that's, that's where I am. And um, I'm, wearing, I'm wearing my uh, work uniform for, for the pandemic, which is a hoodie and sweatpants, and I'm committed. Nice. Like for the like for the duration. I, I read a lot of these articles that say, um, oh, you should get dressed for work and you know, it'll help make you feel like the workday's starting. And I think, no, any opportunity I have to wear comfortable clothes, I'm a hundred percent in. So Ooh, I like love hearing you say that. I mean, we I wanna speak to you about like um women's clothing and how uncomfortable it can be and all of those things. But I just love hearing you say that because I feel the same way. I keep seeing all of these people talking about like, get up at the same time, like shower, get dressed, make your bed, like get started on the right foot. And I'm like, I've been working from home for several years now and I don't always get dressed and I'm pretty great. And I love hearing you say that. You're like, sweatpants for life, baby. Like, <laughs> Yeah, what a beautiful gift to give your body right now. Like if you have the ability to dress in comfortable clothes during a deeply uncomfortable time. Give your body some fleece. That's what it wants. I love that. During such an uncomfortable time, give your body something comfortable to wear. That is beautiful. That goes on a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's very interesting to hear you say that you got into this because not because of your own struggles, but because of, of you witnessing, and I've watched your TED talk and you talked about this, like all of these women would be in your classroom and they'd be devoting so much of their cognitive resources and mental real estate to worrying about what they look like. How do you think you sort of quote, like avoided experiencing food and body image issues? So I don't think there's ever an easy answer to a difficult problem. And it's, it's a lot of what I try to teach my students no matter what topic I'm teaching about, is I always tell them they need to um, turn their bullshit meters up a little bit, right? They should, be, uh, they should be a little more sensitive than they are. And if they ever hear anyone say that the solution for X big problem is Y, they should assume that's wrong. Um, because the truth is people are complicated. There are a lot of individual differences that make us respond to different things in different ways. Our culture is complicated. Um, there are a number of things that might be terrible for your body image, but other people might experience as really affirming and helpful. Uh, and so I, I try to be careful of saying like, this is the trick, right? I don't think we have an easy solution. Um, I think we have a, a series of small steps we can take to try to build healthier communities. Um, and that I think is is more realistic for us, um, is try to surround ourselves with people who share our values when it comes to body image and eating and to really opt out of content and contacts who don't. Um, I know that's not always easy if some of those people are your family members. Um, and I know a lot of people struggle with that. Um, but what I, what I often come back to, I never thought I would be someone who would be uh, talking about values, you know, like, but, I think it's a word that's been co-opted into politics too much, right? So we hear about values now, it makes us kind of nervous, like we're gonna have a political discussion. But um, when I say values, I'm just talking about what's important to people. Um, so if, if I had to point in one direction for how do we make this a, a healthier culture, a healthier climate, 
um, it's to keep our values in mind, right? And to give people space to really think about their values, to ask young people about their values, to ask them what matters to them, what's important to them. Um, they, they know the answers to those questions. I think we often just don't give people space to think about them. And the more we can immerse ourselves in what's important, I think the less distracted we get by all the appearance pressures we get from our culture. Mm, yeah. And do you feel like that was maybe part of what sort of had you not grow up with experiencing like the epidemic of body shame was that it was just more of an emphasis on your values? So I have to be really honest here is, is that mostly I was lucky. So mostly the reason I didn't grow up with body shame is because I was white, because I was naturally thin, um, because I was able-bodied, um, because I, I wasn't carrying around any of the sort of body um, stigmatizing markers that our culture is so hard on. So I don't think um, I, I, I made an effort, you know, to come through adolescence unscathed by this. I think I was just lucky. And I think that's something that we can all do a service to other people by. Um, it's not coming out clearly, but I think we need to be more honest about that. Um, the, a lot of our body image struggles are completely beyond our control, right? They, they come from the bodies and the circumstances we're born into. Um, and yet we like to say things like, oh, everybody just love their body. No one should feel any shame and everyone should feel confident. And um, there are people who face actual discrimination based on their bodies out there in the world every day. Um, so... I don't know why I didn't grow up with more of a struggle. It wasn't something we really talked about in my mm -hmm. household one way or another. Um, maybe I was just too busy being a big nerd. Um, <laughs> but I think mostly I was just lucky. I think mm -hmm. I just had a lot of privilege. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We we definitely have talked about that on the podcast, you know, about like thin privilege and and fitting the ideal and the beauty standards and, and how that doesn't necessarily arm you from dealing, mm -hmm. but from being impacted, you can still be hegemonically right. beautiful and be impacted by these things. But I do think that it is easier for you to move through life. Right. You know, yeah. It was just basically a, a set of luck I was born into is the way I think of it. And you're right, like many of the the young people in particular I talk to are traditionally beautiful, right? And they have bodies, our culture values, and, and they still suffer, which mm -hmm. I think tells you what a big problem it is. But I also think we need to uh, be included, I think, do a better job seeking out voices of people who, who don't have that cushion, right? Who, who get stared at when they leave the house or no one wants to sit by them on the bus because of how they look. Like we, we don't tend to talk about that as much. Mm, yeah. So raising up the voices of those. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk about your book um, about this, you know, epidemic of body shame that we're experiencing. Your book is called Beauty Sick, which I've read and loved. You also check it out. It's how the culture, our cultural obsession with appearance hurts girls and women. And I was reading an article that you had written and you had said that 34, it was based on research that you had looked at, 34% of five-year-old girl, girls engage in deliberate dietary restraint at least sometimes. And I felt that alarming that the girls were so young. And you had said, while little girls might want to grow up to be teachers or nurses, you can almost guarantee that they also want to be thin and pretty. Mm -hmm. So can you just talk about how does this happen? Why does it happen? And what is beauty sickness? So when I say beauty sickness, and I think that's especially important to talk about now, given what we're facing as a, 
of the world, um, is that not being literal illness? Um, what, I, what I use that for is a term to refer to what happens when all of your emotional energy and your mental energy gets so caught up in worrying about how you look that you don't have enough left for the things that matter to you more. So that's what I mean when I say beauty sickness. And the seeds of beauty sickness are planted so young. Right? The, the truth is that statistic on five-year-old girls, five-year-old girls don't understand dieting. Right? They, don't, they don't necessarily understand how to put their shoes on on any given day. Right? So they, they don't really understand dieting. But what it means is that they've already learned that dieting is something that women do, right? That it's part of the language of womanhood, that it's, that it's something they're gonna grow into the same way they want to um, grow into the other privileges of adulthood. And so to me, that's what's so worrying about that statistic is that it signals to me that you have very young girls who've already learned that their body is a problem to be solved. Um, and that, that's a heavy burden to carry growing up. Um, it's a certain way of thinking about your body, which is, is really stifling. It takes away a lot of freedom of expression and a lot of freedom of movement. And it starts um, eating up your mental real estate um, before you can even really understand what's happening. Uh, we talk a lot about media literacy, which I think is great. I think it's wonderful um, to be critical of toxic beauty ideals. But you have these things seeping in well before young children are able to engage in that kind of critical thinking. Right, the foundations already been laid by, by princess culture and by sort of anti-fat portrayals in the media that link fatness um, with, with evil, right? That they make the villains in children's movies fat all the time. And um, so they're learning these lessons very young. Um, and I think this is where parents have a lot of power to intervene, um, a lot more power than they think. Mm, yeah, it makes me think of like Ursula in Ariel in The Little Mermaid. And the only larger bodied person in The Little Mermaid is Ursula. And she's like the evil villain. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I think a lot of people who create these programs, I think they, they often don't even think about it, right? It's a sort of unconscious um, communication of, of biases that a, a lot of us hold, um, which means it's going to take a lot of deliberate conscious work to get past it um, because children age four to six already show anti-fat bias. Um, they say more negative things about like book characters who are heavy. They don't want to be friends with people who are heavier. Um, a lot of that starts in the home too. It's not, I don't want to just blame Disney, although that's fine. Oh, right. Yeah. I don't want to blame. I mean, I like, I secretly like love Disneyland. So, you know, I don't want to blame them either, but like, I love what you had said. It's not like the person who, it's not like the, the creative team, the engineers, I don't think they were called that back then, but those who like, you know, were designing the movie necessarily were like, let's make Ursula big because we want to villainize fat people. Like you, like you said, it was probably sort of just like an unconscious bias. It was sort of just confirming their inherited beliefs about mm -hmm. life, about reality. And then you had said that, you know, this parents have a lot of power here, partly mm -hmm. because a lot of, children's anti-fat biases learned in the home. So what are some things that parents can do who are listening? This is one of my favorite things to talk about because I think there are actually some pretty easy things to implement that can have an impact. That all They don't take any special resources, they just take practice. Um, and one thing I recommend is to just stop body talk in your house. Um, just don't do it. Um, a lot of, I think mothers in particular, work very hard not to pass on their body image struggles to their daughters 
And so they tell their daughters all the time, you're so beautiful, you're so wonderful. Uh, but then they say hateful things about their own bodies. And daughters hear that, they remember that. So um, I think your best move is just to stop talking about how bodies look altogether. Um, to just say our home is gonna be a space where we don't, we don't talk about people that way. We focus on other things that matter more. Um, so we don't watch television programs that focus on how people look. We don't make catty comments about other people. Um, I think that can be a, a really nice thing to do for your children. Um, and since we started talking about sweatpants and hoodies, um, the, uh, the COVID uniform, um, this is another thing that you can do for your children is to dress them in clothes that allow them to move, um, is to don't fuss with their appearance. And I know, I get it, I have, I have a niece um, and she's four now. It drives my mom crazy um, that my niece does not get dressed in big poofy dresses. Because she's like, oh, it'd be so cute, it'd be so lovely, and why don't they put bows in her hair, and why don't they do that? And, and I get it, I get that we like to dress little children up, but the, you know, little girls are not dolls. They're actually moving human beings. And I understand if once in a while children need to get dressed up for a wedding or a special occasion, um, but when you're talking about everyday wear, why not let your girls be comfortable? Why not let all of your children, regardless of their gender, um, be comfortable and be free to move? And don't, don't send the lesson that part of your job as a little girl in the world is, is to look pretty, right? And um, if your little girl keeps ripping the bow out of her hair, you know, maybe stop putting the bow in her hair. It doesn't need to be there. Um, and if she finds tights uncomfortable, maybe she doesn't need to wear tights, right? Maybe there, maybe there's another option. Um, I, I find tights hateful. I know that a lot of adults like them, but um, my, I don't know, it's my body shape or something, but I, 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 you can tell me any brand you want and I'm gonna tell you they're not comfortable. I don't like them, I don't want them. Um, and one of the very cool things about being an adult is that I don't have to wear them, right? Um, and I look back and I remember moments in my childhood of arguing with my mom about tights. This is a, this is a long hated um, item in my mind. Um, back from when I was very young, I hated wearing tights. Um, and I think, why did we have to have those battles? Right? Why was it so important to, to dress little girls, uh, you know, an item of clothing they found uncomfortable? Um, what, a, what a strange thing to hold on to as a culture. Mm. Um, it's, it's, we've let go of so many other, you know, strictures around gender. Um, why not let this one go too? Um, in the same way, I don't want to tell adult women to wear corsets. Um, you know, let's, let's dress our little girls in comfortable clothes too. So I think you can watch your body talk at home. You can give your girls freedom of movement or give all your children freedom of movement. Um, I think it's also really important to think about how we talk about food and dieting. Right? Um, I know a lot of parents are, are truly worried about their health of their children. And I have parents say like, well, how am I not supposed to talk about this? I don't want my children to be heavy because I know that life will be harder for them then. Um, and I think it's true. Right? It's true that life is harder for people who are fatter for, for a variety of, of reasons. Um, but I think what a lot of parents don't realize is that having all that diet talk and calorie counting talk in the household does not help your children be thinner. Right? All of our research on this um, says that children who are exposed to that are more likely to gain weight. Um, they're more likely to be heavier. Um, when you put a lot of um, emotion and stress around eating, 
um, that's, that's not a healthy way um, to teach your children to, to feed their bodies with, with care and love. And it, it also strips a lot of the joy out of eating. Um, and, and I don't think that's, that's necessary, right? I think there are different lessons we can be sending um, about food and our relationship with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know that that type of talk like uh, strips us of our like attunement to our internal intuitive cues, our body signals. And so when you start talking about it, you think about it as opposed to like responding to your, your internal signals. So like, I know that's Mm -hmm. a part of it as well. Um, I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into the conversation around clothes and women's clothing um, as well. It's something you talk about in beauty in beauty sick, you talk about like the cost of beauty, the cost of clothing, the cost of like nails, hair, all of those things. And mm-hmm. you wrote an article in the Washington Post and you were talking, it was, I think like two years ago or three years mm-hmm. ago. And you were talking about the, uh, the stiletto, the emoji yeah. red stiletto. And you also had talked about, um, how Facebook removed the, like, I feel fat emoticon as mm-hmm. well a couple years ago. But I want to talk about women's fashion. You, I, I'm going to quote you here. You say, we wear Spanx to hide any jiggling because controlling our body shape is more important than comfortably drawing oxygen into our lungs. And I was just like, damn. Yeah. So can you just speak to like the impacts of the beauty culture of clothing, yeah. this emoji, all of the things? Yeah. Um, I should say first, that this is another area where I'm very lucky. I can wear pretty much anything I want to work. Um, and I know not every woman has that option, you know, but, but that is the, the freedom I'm, I'm speaking from. But I think we have to be honest that there's nothing natural about the fact that women's fashions are more uncomfortable than men's. Um, that this is a byproduct of, you know, long-standing sets of biases and that it's also completely unnecessary. Right, so anytime women are expected to wear something that I know most men would never even consider, I think we need to step back and ask why. Why are we okay with that? Right? What does that mean? Um, I got one of the nastiest um, troll emails I ever got was after I wrote that article about about stilettos, about high heeled shoes, um, and it basically argued that women should be uncomfortable in their fashions so that they look sexy to men because men always give women the money and that's the price you pay um, to have men buy drinks for you. It was, it was this long screed. Did it come from um, a man or a woman? Oh, it came from a man. Okay. okay I, also, I was curious. <laughs> it came from a man. I also got some hate mail um, from women. This is one of the points I made in that article is that you take women who as a whole are, are more vulnerable to assault in this culture um, and then you put them in shoes in which they can't run, right? Um, a lot of these shoes you can't even stand in comfortably for any period of time, much less run. Um, and I had a woman email me and say, I could run just fine in my high heels, thank you very much. And I thought, really? <laughs> really? Is this, this is a sport I would like to see, right? Um, so here's the thing, if you wanna wear high heels, wear them, right? But let's ask, why women's fashions have to hurt because we pay a price for that not just in pain and blisters but also in distraction Um, when you're wearing something distracting whether it's because it's constricting or painful um, or because it requires monitoring like you have to fuss with your neckline or things like that um, that distracts you right so you're paying a cost in terms of cognitive resources I understand that people want to be cute. I don't, I don't think there's anything weird about that. I understand that a lot of people enjoy fashion. 
Um, but I don't understand why fashion ought to have to be uncomfortable for women. Um, I think there's there's got to be some sort of compromise in there. I, I talk a lot about, oh, I see a lot of young women on my campus going to formal. Um, you know, they'd be piling into buses, well, back before all of this happened, but they would be piling into buses to go to like a fancy place downtown Chicago and have their formal. Um, and I would see so many who could barely walk, right? Because they would be wearing these super high heels um, and generally paired with a very, very short, very tight skirt. Um, and I understand that they want to look sexy, right? I don't think that's a, a weird impulse at all. Um, but I keep thinking like, couldn't a few more inches of skirt have left you feeling sexy and still having the ability to move, right? Um, and being able to sit down, right? Um, like, is, isn't there a way that we can make that happen? Um, I, I had an honest conversation with some women who work in my lab once where I was like, you just have to explain this to me. And like, what's going on? Is it really that, you know, the skirt that's just barely below your crotch, you, that you find it that much more attractive? Is it, do you feel pressure to do it? Do you like it? Is it actually comfortable to you? It doesn't make any difference. And um, she was, she just sort of said like, well, I don't know. We don't really think about it. You just come down in it and all the other girls say, oh, you look so cute. You look so hot. And, and so we do it. Um, so I don't think we need to be wearing paper bags. Um, I don't think everyone needs to wear sweatpants all the time, even though that would be my dream world. But um, I think that uh, it's, we, we don't talk enough about the kindness it is um, to give your body clothes that aren't distracting, that aren't restricting. Um, and I make really different choices about this now than I used to. Like if I put on a pair of pants in the morning to go to work, um, and I have that feeling of like, oh, I bet like by the end of the day, it's gonna be like uncomfortable in the waistband or when I bend over, I just say no. I just say no and I put on something else. Um, and maybe that means I'm not as cute at work. I don't know, that's the price I'm willing to pay. Um, but I don't think I've ever regretted that. And I think we, many women have had, um, especially women who work outside the home have had that moment where they're at work and thinking why? Right. Why did I wear this? Why did I put it on? It's so uncomfortable. It's so distracting. Um, so I say just take that moment before you walk out the door. Right? Um, be nice to your body. Your body wants to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's like we ask that question why. And I think that like we could answer that. Yeah. Like we could answer why women feel compelled to do these things. Right. Or why they think they need to like wear stilettos mm -hmm. or, or or look sexy or wear the short skirt like we can look at out in culture and see why would you want to speak to that a little bit just about like some of your research and what you see and yeah so i think the why is complicated but overall what we know is that looking sexy um, particularly in the eyes of men um is a is a source of social currency for women right that we we see it as a type of power because in some ways it is right and um we can acknowledge that like we can be honest but I think there's more to it than that, right? Um, I, I worry about women who nurture sexiness as their primary source of power. Um, because, so I'm 44 um, now, and I remember when I, about the time I turned 40, I started having a lot of peers who, who were women talk to me and say, this is scary. You know, like I've been cute all my life. I've been sexy. I've had like a socially valued body and a socially valued appearance and it's leaving 
And I don't know what to do about that because I feel like I'm losing my power and, and how do I cope with that? And that's a devastating thing to hear, right? To, to hear a woman say that like, as she moves into middle age, like that, that she no longer feels valued by her culture because what it suggests is that we still live in a culture that's predominantly valuing women for their appearance. And I think we can't count on um, businesses to change this, right? They're never gonna do that. They profit off women's insecurity. Um, I don't think we can count on men to change this, right? I think the only hope we have for making a dent in this problem is for more and more women to say, this is not my source of power. Right? And it's going to be hard, but I'm going to build other sources of power and other sources of influence um, that I get to keep as I age, right? that, that aren't going to go away. Um, it's been, aging has been interesting for me because um, you, you asked if I had a lot of body image struggles growing up and I didn't. I feel like my first introduction to that world was as I started to age. Um, mm. I remember when I, I found my first wrinkle, I can't remember if I wrote about this, but the, the bathroom lighting is really bad where I work. Um, and then also I, I chew on pens and I play with pens a lot. And so I often have pen on my face, like that's not weird. And so I was in the bathroom and I thought I had pen on my forehead. <laughs> so I like licked my finger and I tried to get it off and it didn't come off. And I had a moment where I was like, oh, that's a wrinkle. Right, and that that was this this moment, right? To decide, well, what are you going to do with that? Mm. Are you going to let it devastate you? Are you going to call a plastic surgeon? Um, right? Are are you going to decide that it's okay to age and that it's okay to have uh, marks on your body that go along with that? Um, it's going to be a really interesting social experiment now that uh, women can't go to salons and dermatologists and have plastic surgeries and all that for a while. Um, we're going to start to see what a lot of people look like without all that really expensive maintenance um, and, you know, time-consuming spa work um, over the coming weeks. <laughs> I'm starting to see it talked about already. Um, people are going to start going gray on Zoom. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I know you can do it at home, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I totally feel you. And I, I'd love for you to, to like, let's, I keep speaking on that. I find it so interesting. You know, I think you had talked about this in your TED talk and perhaps also in your book of like, what's real power that disappears as you actually gain more experience and wisdom um, throughout life? Like, is that actually really power yeah. if it strips away? And, you know, I'm only 32, but like I, it must just be because I live in California and I'm in the sun my whole life, but like the wrinkles have started, the gray hair has started. And like, I've been like sort of navigating this. I have friendship women. Some of my best friends are in their forties and I've experienced what you've experienced where they talk about how they're just like not feeling good about themselves for like mm -hmm. one of the first times in their lives because they're feeling like they're less valuable. People are paying less attention to them. They're getting the wrinkles, all of these things. I'm curious, like what you, how do we change this? So you said media company, men aren't going to change this. How do we yeah. as women start to change the yardstick? Like, how do we do this for ourselves? And I think we have to be our own role models, right? Um, because I don't, I don't know that we have a lot, right? Things are changing. And, and when you talk about aging women, people will point to one or two celebrities who have managed to you know, not age for several decades. I don't think that's helpful to women, right? I don't want that to be my standard. Um, I'm 44, I'm okay if I look 44, right? Like that, that should be okay. Um, but at the same time, 
I want to be clear that I am not judging women who do things to fight the appearance of aging. Um, it's, I think, completely realistic that even when we don't love the way our culture is going right now, that we still have to find a way to live in it. Um, that being said, every time I see a woman um, who's gone all gray and who is out there owning it, I love it. Right? I love it. Like I, I, I send her a little thank you in my head and, and say, nice, right? I have a role model. And women wouldn't feel so much pressure to get Botox and fillers and all these things if all of their peers weren't doing it as well. And so the fact that fighting the signs of aging is expensive also says something about the ways our ideas of beauty are tied up with class. Um, it is an expensive proposition to try to stay looking like you're 30 um, when you're 50, right? This is um, not something that comes easily and it requires access to products and procedures that most women in the world could never even dream of accessing, right? And so it's another way of sort of widening the gap between the haves and the have-nots. Um, so I don't know, I think it's, it's going to be a difficult battle. What we see right now is that even women who have legitimate power, we still focus on how they look. So what can we do is we can keep calling out um, media companies that do that, journalists that do that, ourselves, our friends. Like I don't, I don't want to hear about how politicians look. Even the ones I don't like, I don't want to hear them made fun of for how they look. And, and I, I actually mean that. Um, I think we need to stop using that as a, as a way to put people in their place because it, it gets disproportionately used against women. And, and that is something that affects our influence in the world. I wonder how many more women would run for office if they weren't worried about how brutally their appearance would be attacked if they were to enter the public eye. Um, yeah. It's, I, I think we're missing some people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Like whether just like no longer using that as a way to either talk despairingly against people or positively, like just really moving away from the conversation around appearance. And I really loved that point that you hit on about how so many of the things available to us to slow down aging are expensive. And it's one more way in which it, it, feeds into classism and and a hierarchy and all of those things. I think that's sometimes something that we don't fully realize unless someone points it out, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and you talked a lot about the amount of money that women spend on average, like in your book. Do you want to yeah. share anything about what you've learned in your research? So I can say we don't have an exact number, right? It's really hard. I tried and tried to, to get some exact number, but um, in some ways it's hard to distinguish between things we do for our health and things we do for beauty. Right, so do those spin classes, you know, are, are, they, are they to take care of your body and your mind and um, keep you sharp and keep you healthy? Um, or are they really a way to stay skinny? And I think for a lot of people, they're both maybe, right? So it's hard to determine um, how to count things like that. And I think we drastically undercount how much we spend on things like cosmetics and products, right? Because there's so many that you buy and then they sit in some drawer somewhere and you never use them, right? Um, I've heard that suggested as a pandemic activity is going through all of your, your old makeups and beauty products and getting rid of things you don't need. And I bet a lot of women that would be surprised when they start adding it up 
or even um, salon trips and spa trips for people who are doing that, it's a lot of money and it's also a lot of time. Right? Um, I used to used to get my nails done really regularly. Just I liked it. I thought it was relaxing. Um, but I realized it was becoming a burden that I'd have these that I'd have a weekend where I'd be like, oh my god, I just don't have time. Oh, I have to figure out how to make that appointment and still get all my work done this weekend. And then it was like, oh, well, let's just not not do that anymore, right? So I've I've had plain nails now for for many months. I will I still get pedicures though. Mm. <laughs> they feel so nice. They feel so nice. But uh, once in a while, I still get a pedicure. But I remember thinking, oh, that I really like manicures, right? I really do. Um, and then I stopped doing it and I found that I'm actually perfectly capable of filing my nails and it's fine. Yeah. Right. And it makes me wonder like, what are, what are other things that could join that list? Um, what are other ways I could claim that time back and do something more fun with it instead? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The time and the resources, like it's such a huge thing. Um, I really want to chat with you about how shame is not a diet plan. Um, this was a section in your book that I, as soon as I read that shame is on a diet plan, I was like, I think I've quoted you like a hundred times. <laughs> um, and you have talked about how like a lot of us will justify shame. We justify shaming ourselves or others because we think it's effective and motivating. And you've found in your research that that's not true at all. Can you speak to that and share with us like what you've discovered about shame and all of that? Yeah, I can. So I wrote a little bit about that in beauty sick, but if I were to rewrite that book today, I, I would have even more content, I think. Um, one of the questions I always get when I talk about body image um, is, and it's often one of the first questions, it's like somebody's just like itching to ask it, they can't help it, and they stand up and they'll be like, yes, but what about obesity? What about people are getting fat? And I, I try to be compassionate, right? Um, I try to understand where people are coming from. But first of all, I don't think that's your business, right? Um, I don't think other, other people's bodies are our business. I'm, I'm not open to arguments or, uh, from people who are saying, oh, I'm just worried about people's health. I'm just worried about people's health. Um, I don't think that's what's going on. I absolutely don't. If we were worried about people's health, we wouldn't think it was, oh, sorry, um, I had to shut my email. Um, if we were worried about people's health, we wouldn't think it was cute when skinny people talk about binging. And we do, we think it's hysterical, right? When if someone's skinny is like, oh, the whole pizza and you're like oh yeah I ate all the donuts um, and imagine how we would react if somebody who was fat said something like that right so this isn't this isn't about health it's not about health because if you care about people's health you would maybe do things to help people's health right maybe you would support health professionals or you would volunteer you would donate money um, to the organizations that actually support health, particularly of vulnerable or marginalized populations. Um, but that's just one problem. So that's the first problem with fat shaming is that it's mean and we just need to call it out for being mean, right? It's cruel and it's unnecessary. Um, but the other thing is, is that even if it weren't cruel and mean, it doesn't actually cause people to lose weight. Um, the being shamed by other people does not help you lose weight. Um, and shaming yourself does not help you lose weight. So even if that is your goal, um, this is not a way to go about doing it. And this is, uh, I'm trying to think of how to say this. We, we have to be careful when we talk about psychological literature because sometimes you can have mixed findings, right? Where 
you see some evidence of something, but other studies might find the reverse, right? And so you don't want to draw too firm of conclusions. Um, I am completely comfortable in the conclusions that the medical community has drawn about this, which is that shame and stigma and teasing and bias cause weight gain. Um, they do not cause weight loss. And I'll hear someone say like, oh, but I got made fun of when I was a kid and that's what prompted me to get in shape. And I think what a sad way to go about doing that, and I'm sorry, but also one story like that doesn't change the overwhelming mountain of evidence, right? Shame is not good for people. Um, when it does prompt changes in eating behaviors, they're often not healthy, right? Shame can often send you into a cycle of restriction, which then leads to binging, right? Or sometimes shame can send you straight into binging, right? Because you're like, what's the point? Right? I might as well do something that will help me feel better right now, right in this moment. Um, so there's, there's just no reason for it. Right? Uh, we should never be encouraging body shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we, I completely um, hear that same sentiment of like, yeah, but like, what about obesity? What about health? And we justify shaming people for their body size under the false disguise of, of a health mm -hmm. concern. And I'm with you. I don't think it's actually about health because like, what about mental health? Shame mm -hmm. is obviously not good for mental health. And then I know just on a personal um, experience with myself and with women that I speak to, we like say, well, if I wasn't so hard on myself, I'd never take care of myself. What do you say to that? Like if someone has <laughs> <doesn't>, that objection. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me, right? Because we don't take care of things we hate, right? We take care of people we love. We take care of things we love. Imagine if you said, well, if I didn't hate my children so much, I, I don't know if I could trust myself to take good care of them. Oh my God, right? that's so good. You, you would never say something like that. Like <laughs> if I weren't so supremely disappointed in my spouse all the time, um, I just wouldn't be able to love them anymore, right? I wouldn't be able to make good choices for them. Um, we take care of the things that we love, right? Um, the, the idea too behind a lot of this body shaming is that somehow you can be fat and not know you're fat. Can you imagine living in this culture as a fat person and, but you just didn't realize, right? I think that's what a lot of people think with the, with the amount of bias and discrimination and and stigma that fat people face in our culture, the idea that all they're missing in their diet plan is you calling them fatty, that's, that's actually insane, right? That's, that defies all logic. Um, and you would also need to somehow reconcile the fact that um, as Americans are getting heavier, um, anti-fat bias seems to be increasing as well, as well right? So if, if bias and shaming were a way to sort of tamp down weight gain, we wouldn't be seeing those two trends move together. Mm, that's a really good point. Really good point. And I really loved how you flipped the like, the, that conversation from having it be about our bodies to being like our kids or our spouse. I think that that's really helpful and like clear in creating clarity for people. Um, and I totally agree with you. Like if shame worked, people would be like a swivel stick. You know what I mean? But it doesn't work. Like you said, it often leads to binging. You don't have the desire to exercise because you're worried mm -hmm. about being judged and criticized if you go to the gym in a larger body, all of these things. It stops mm -hmm. people from going to the doctors because they don't want to be discriminated right. against. Like, It just doesn't work. Weight and stigma contributes to the problems. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so we're getting towards the end of our time together. So I wanted to shift gears and ask you some fun more lighthearted questions. Well, they might be lighthearted. We'll see. Um, before we wrap this up. So 
let's pretend you're on a deserted island and you can only bring one movie, one book, one TV show, one food item, and one genre of music. What would you bring? Oh, I am so bad at these questions. I'm so bad. Um, let's see. I think for TV show, I could actually answer that because I have been really enjoying The Good Place. Okay. And I feel like there's a lot of content in there that would be good upon rewatching. So may maybe I would give that a shot. Um, oh, so many of the books I like are sad. Oh, that's okay. Um, I find myself really moved by these beautifully sad books, and I'm thinking, do I really want to bring a sad book on a deserted island? Because books I've liked recently are um, All the Light We Cannot See, I think it's really beautiful, or Rebecca Mackay's um, The Great Believers, but they're also complete tearjerkers, so I guess I would be on my island sobbing, and then I'd watch <laughs> The Good Place to cheer up. Um, let's see. I bring some ice cream. It's going to okay. be hot. It's going to be hot on that desert island. I should mm -hmm. probably have some ice cream. Some uh, Ben and Jerry's New York Super Fudge Chunk. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Very specific. Yeah. Yeah. If you only get one. You right. Have to pick one. Got it. The best one. Okay. Movie and genre of music. <sighs> I sort of like dark comedies. Like I found Little Miss Sunshine to be really well done. I like, I like stuff like that. What else have I liked? I watched a it's a little bit older now though, but an indie film the other day called In a World, which was about uh, voiceover actors, which I found highly entertaining. So I don't know, I'd, I'd bring some sort of comedy, I guess. Oh wait, what am I missing now? Um, genre of music. Genre of music. I'm gonna tell you the most embarrassing thing about music, because my students laugh at me about it all the time, is I like radio stations that play uh, string covers of pop hits. <laughs> Do you know this? No. <laughs> like, if you, for anyone out there who has serious radio, um, the channel is Elevations, and it's all like string and piano and these beautiful instrumental covers of like Miley Cyrus <laughs> and other kinds of <laughs> And like, Baby One More Time, and like, I Want You Back yes. from NSYNC. Yes. No, absolutely. It's exactly what it is. And I, I find those songs so enjoyable. And then also, they're like karaoke, right? You can, you can sing a lot. So yeah. maybe I would bring, maybe I'd bring that with me. That actually sounds awesome. And could you imagine like that's your job? You play in this this string quartet and you like you like play Britney Spears songs and like that's I just your gig. It's gotta feel so like fun and subversive. I was at a, a brunch once in a hotel and there was a string group doing that. And I started listening and I just start cracking up because I realized they were playing um a song by Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre and they were playing it on like a cello and a violin. And yeah, I love it. I actually like that might need to get Sirius XM so I can like just check for out. elevations yeah like, elevations it's, is it's awesome it's <laughs> like so cool like it's yeah like a like a classical music version of some gangster mm -hmm. rap yep <laughs> awesome that sounds like a dance party on your island um okay what is something insightful or interesting inter interesting that you have learned recently that has left an impact on you? So it could be a quote or a fact or a story or just something that's inspired you recently. I mean, this is sort of bound to this current time period that we're all trying to live through, but I've been, I've been inspired by how even in, in times of panic and fear, sometimes you see the, the best parts of people's nature shining through. Um, I live in Evanston, Illinois, which is just north of Chicago, and there's a Facebook group that has popped up for community response to uh, COVID-19. And I follow it pretty closely. And every day I see 
more and more people who are volunteering to bring meals to people who need them and to keep our, our school kids fed who aren't getting meals at school and who are finding masks and bringing them to healthcare workers. And when the news is, is full of horror as it is these days, um, I, I like to remember that there's still that spark, right? There's, there's a lot of uh, good in people that starts uh, shining through and we give them the right, the right conditions to, to show us that light. So that's what, I, that's what I hope to take from that, right? Is that we need to help people be in the situation where the, the best in them can come out. Mm, that's beautiful, I love that, yeah, totally. Like I, I feel you deeply on that. Okay, words of wisdom, last one. Words of wisdom for your 20-year-old self. Oh, I would tell 20-year-old Renee to just have more fun, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was such, I was such an uptight little young person. Oh, poor 20-year-old Renee was, was always worried about, you know, whether everything was going to go according to plan and always trying to be the best at everything. And so, yeah, I'd love to go back and, like, shake her shoulders a little bit. Hey, you're young, you're healthy, you have time, have some fun. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Young people today, even more so. I think they're under so much pressure and so much strain. And we need a we need a permission, I think, sometimes to have some joy. Yeah. Yeah. Would you take a minute to speak to what you see some of the pressures that young people are facing? I'm astounded by it. I have a lot of people ask me this, and I've been teaching long enough now. Shit back up. It's a weird job to have where I keep getting older, right? But every year, 18 to 22 year olds are who I spend the vast majority of my time with. And I've been doing this since, I don't know, I think I've been a full-time professor since 2004, maybe. Um, And so it's been long enough that I can see trends going now. And when people ask me, um, are the mental health concerns getting worse? Um, I can say, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we have pretty clear data, like epidemiological data um, on that trend, but I also see it borne out in my classrooms is that uh, levels of anxiety and depression um, are just going up and up and up. And I think to some extent, it's made young people more empathetic, right? Because it means either they're suffering um, or they have loved ones who are, their friends are, their family members are. And so I think it's made people a little kinder in some ways and it's reduced stigma in some ways, but it also means that uh, we tend to say, oh, millennials and Gen Zs or iGen or whatever we want to call them now, right? We, we do a lot of dismissive, like, oh, they're just doing Snapchat and they're not serious about anything. But what I see instead is a, a generation that is trying to do the best they can with some pretty heavy burdens. Um, and so what I see is a lot more young people carrying those mental health burdens, but I also see them getting a lot more help and support from their friends. Um, when I have students come into office hours now, you know, 10 years ago, no one would tell me if they were in therapy. And now it's just all, it's like, well, my therapist says blah, 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 right? So I think there's really uh, been a lifting of a lot of the shame that comes from needing mental health support and seeking it out. And I, I think that um, it's, it's really promising. But I also wish that there weren't so many people who needed that kind of support. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for speaking to that and shedding some light on that. And I do think, yeah, we like to like we like to talk a lot of smack about millennials and uh are they Gen Z? Are they Gen Z? Yeah. I think they're Gen Z or something yeah, really. call them iGen. Yeah. I said something about millennials the other day in class and my students were like, We're not millennials. And I was like, I know, okay, okay. They're like, millennials are old now. 
And I was like, you think millennials are old? <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It's so funny. It's so funny. And now like the I gen, that gen mm-hmm. they're calling boomer, baby boomers, boomers, like, you know, okay, there you go, boomer. boomer. Okay. Boomer. It's like, yeah, it's so funny. I know I did. I just gave my mom an unofficial best boomer award um, nice. yesterday over the phone though for taking social distancing seriously and staying home during the pandemic. I told her that she got an A plus boomer award and I think she was pretty happy with that actually. Nice. Yeah. 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 Let's distribute more boomer awards and stay at home during this pandemic. Um, Renee, thank you for being here. This has been such a pleasure. It was so fun to get to virtually like hang out with you for an hour. I'm really grateful for this conversation. I know it's going to really help the listeners. I, Please enjoy your COVID sweatsuit uniform while you're virtually teaching your hundreds of students. Um, Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. And I forgot to ask Renee the last important question, which is, hey, where can everybody find you if they want to learn more? So I apologize for not asking that. If you want to connect with Renee, you can find her on Instagram at beauty underscore sick. You can also go to her website, beautysick.com or her website, bodyandmedia.com. Those are all the places that you can connect with her. I hope you got a lot out of today's podcast episode. If you're loving the pod, would you please leave a ratings and review on iTunes or share it in your Instagram story? That really helps the podcast keep going and reach more people. Thank you again for listening to the Love Your Bod Pod. Bye.